Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings comes from A Second Letter on the Late Post Office Agitation. It was written in 1850 by Charles Vaughan, a priest and a scholar who is concerned about changes at the post office that look to have postal operations take place on Sundays going forward, the Lord's Day. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thanks to everyone who continues to listen to and support the show. Special shout out to iTunes listener AliHack90 for your lovely review. Hopefully this episode isn't too interesting for you. Special thanks also to Philip Stevens for your messages on Instagram. I am extremely grateful for your reviews and comments and glad that I have been able to help you get a good night's rest. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boy to sleep. If you found the podcast helpful, I'd really appreciate if you were able to leave a review and a rating in your podcast app. It really helps me out in reaching more people who need a good night's rest. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. A second letter on the late Post Office Agitation by Charles John Vaughan My dear sir, it has been satisfactory to me to receive from many excellent and well-informed persons assurances of their entire concurrence in the sentiment of my former letter. I am neither surprised nor alarmed to find myself assailed in other quarters by loud and severe animadversions. You, sir, have occupied an intermediate ground. You are too well aware of the particular circumstances which occasioned my letter to accuse me of a gratuitous interference in a wearisome and unthankful controversy. Your strictures, therefore, are confined to some particular points in my argument, which you regard as requiring further elucidation, and you urge me not so much for your own satisfaction as for that of others to take the same opportunity of clearing away some misapprehensions to which 
in the judgment of persons unacquainted with my opinions, my former letter may have been exposed. Half and more than half, the arguments of my reviewers would have been felt by themselves to be irrelevant if they had taken the trouble to observe the circumstances under which my letter was written. It was not to the general question of the observance of the Sunday, nor even to the extent which it may be the right that the post office should observe it, that my remarks were directed. The question before me was this. I am urged as an act of religious duty to protest against a particular order of the government. I am told in the most sacred place that a particular regulation of the London Post Office is to be regarded no less as an affront to religion and a violation of the rights of conscience than as an infraction of the liberties of England. An examination of the question leads me to the opposite conclusion. I believe that the measure thus stigmatised will, so far as it extends, promote rather than impede the interests of religion, will, on the whole, facilitate rather than interfere with the attendance of that class which it concerns upon the ordinances of worship, while it leaves untouched those wilder and more general considerations which would involve, if seriously and consistently entertained, a revolution in the management of the whole department. I refuse, therefore, to protest. I refuse to assert what I see no reason to believe, that the national observance of the Lord's Day will suffer from this particular modification of an existing system. I refuse to assert what I think is a most unchristian malignancy to suspect that the object of this new regulation was that which is disavowed and repudiated by its authors. I cannot discover in it an insidious but resolute attack upon the holy ordinance of the Christian Sunday. It would have been in me an act of ridiculous affection to express an alarm in which I did not participate, or to remonstrate against a measure of detail by way of expressing a principle which was not at issue. So far, however, my duty was but negative. It was discharged by refusing my signature. Nor was it until I heard that refusal commented upon afterwards from the pulpit in terms, to say the least, of grave disapprobation 
that it ever occurred to me to vindicate myself and others from a suspicion of indifference or of timidity and by a statement of the real nature and object of the measure thus impunged. It was enough, therefore, for my own vindication, enough, I repeat, to justify my refusal to protest, to show that the mere transmission of letters through the London Post Office on the Sunday, taken in connection with its avowed object on the one hand, and with its contaminant measures of relief on the other, was not the affront to religion, that disparagement of divine ordinances, which alone could necessitate the interposition of a Christian nation for its discomfiture. This was the object of my letter, and this object steadily kept in view necessarily confined my argument within narrow limits and excluded many topics of discussion to which the opponents of measure would gladly divert our attention. For example, a clerical antagonist for whose character and evident sincerity I entertain great respect and whose name as he well knows, is enough to secure for him at my hands a degree of forbearance and courtesy which he would think it a declaration of duty to reciprocate, complains that I have not enunciated in my letter any positive opinions of my own as to the grounds of the observance of the Lord's Day. To supply this deficiency, he has had recourse to my published sermons, and selecting from a sermon, preached on a particular occasion, an incidental notice of the question, continues his complaint that there are also my language, on this subject is vague and unsatisfactory. I can direct him if a time of unwanted leisure should ever permit him to avail himself of the reference to three consecutive discourses on the Lord's Day, contained in a volume of parochial sermons published four years ago, in which I have entered fully into the discussion and expressed myself in language to which I still heartily subscribe. You, my dear sir, will not require to be informed that there, as everywhere, I have spoken of the Lord's Day, as every Christian man must speak and think of it, with veneration, with thankfulness, with an earnest and watchful jealousy for its honour. The author of the reply would have expressed himself, doubtless, in language more eloquent and more impressive, but he could scarcely have used any more decisive as to his own convictions 
than that in which the national observance of the Sunday is there enforced. For his information, not for yours, I quote the sentences which follow. Finally, I would desire to press upon you the responsibility under which the possession of such an ordinance places us, whether we will hear or whether we will forbear, a responsibility to God for which we must, each and all of us, give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead, but a responsibility also to our country and to generations yet perhaps to come. Other nations once had this privilege of a Christian Sabbath, but they have almost or utterly sinned it away. They neglected and abused it, till God took away, by a just retribution, almost the very name of his day from amongst them. There are countries in Christendom in which Sunday is known almost only as a day of amusement or of common business. England too may one day be brought to this state unless our responsibilities are better remembered than they are now. Let us, at all events, so honour this holy day ourselves, that our children may inherit it from us as one of the most precious of all the gifts of God. In any later expression of my opinions, be demanded by the anxious vigilance of my inquisitor. Let me add a short passage from a sermon preached to a more youthful congregation on the Sunday before my letter was written. And shall we, a later but certainly not a holier generation, despise and tread underfoot a gift so gracious Shall we thanklessly weigh and measure the amount of observance by which we may avoid condemnation in the use of it? Shall we either count it a weekly burden, a deprivation of one-seventh part of life's legitimate enjoyments, or else turn it from a day of heavenly into one of earthly pleasure, and because we dare not openly secularize it, presume to nullify it altogether. My brethren, be wiser, wiser as to your own good, wiser as to your own happiness. Be assured that a wasted Sunday is the precursor of a sinful or an unhappy week. Be assured, on the other hand, that he whose gift it is, a gift of love unspeakable, even of that love which laid down life for us, which make it a happy as well as a profitable day to all who accept it as his gift and use it for the purpose of growing 
in the knowledge and love of its giver. I have thus far followed the guidance of the author of the reply into a field which I still maintain to be a foreign to the subject. I owe it to myself and to the office with which I am entrusted to leave no room for doubt as to my opinions on so serious a question of duty even at the risk of embarrassing for the moment a discussion which lies properly in a narrower compass. But the concession so far as I am concerned shall end here. I assumed throughout my letter that the national observance of the Sunday is a solemn and sacred duty but we may surely be allowed to discuss the objects and probable results of a particular change in the working of the London Post Office without obtruding upon our readers the inquiry whether the Lord's Day is identical with the Jewish Sabbath, whether the sanctity of the Christian Sunday is derived from the law or from the gospel, from the letter which killeth, or the spirit that giveth life. If indeed I were one of those who believe every enactment of the Mosaic Sabbath to be of rigid and perpetual authority, and yet do and exact on that day, without scruple or remorse, acts which if so, are worthy of death, or if while admitting the lawfulness on that day for an individual or for a family of works neither of mercy, strictly speaking, nor of necessity, but only of extreme convenience. I yet denied the possibility of a nation's having any such household duties as even the arrival of the Lord's Day must rather modify than supersede. If I regarded it as a plan and obvious sin for the nation under any circumstances to suffer any one of its officers to do any portion of his common work, on its holy day, if, in short, I regarded the questions as thus foreclosed, by a plain and unequivocal revelation of the divine will, excluding the consideration of motives, of circumstances, of consequences altogether, then certainly sharing my opponent's principles. I might have used, with more or less of his severity, something at least of his language, though, even then, I trust I might have possessed sufficient discernment to distinguish between a question of principle and a question of detail, sufficient respect for the understandings and regard for the consistency of my neighbours, 
to have invited them to a protest, rather against the permissions of any Sunday work in any post office, than against a particular adjustment of that burden to which some had always been subjected. There is another region, besides, into which I must resolutely refuse to follow my opponent, the region of personalities. He is evidently an adept in the occult science of motives. He speaks with irritation of a baffled magician, of any one whose spirit he cannot discern. He confesses that I have puzzled him, He is willing to suspect one motive, unable to impute another. The question is left doubtful, but it is otherwise with Mr. Rowland Hill. He lies helplessly open to the dissecting knife of the operator, and with unflinching severity it is applied. Hostility to the Sabbath enmity against religion. These are visibly his principles. All else is a veil, a cloak, a mask. When he speaks of desiring rest on the Sunday for his subordinates, he means labour. When he prefaces his minute with the profession of regard for the Sunday, he speaks but to deceive and smiles at the easy credulity of his victims, when he not only promises, but effects, a measure of undeniable relief, the discontinuance, for example, of a second Sunday delivery, this is only to disguise his restless spirit of anti-Christian malignity, and he may proceed more covertly, but not surely to his real object, the annihilation of an ordinance of God. I am not the apologist of Mr. Rowland Hill. I know him only as all the world knows him, as the originator and accomplisher of one of the boldest and most beneficial of all the achievements of modern civilization. It will require more than mere assertion to attach to his name those odious imputations which it is necessary for the impungers of the late change to suggest and to foster. And what, after all, are the grounds on which the imputations rest. Mr. Rowland Hill says the record was a director of a railway which refused return tickets extending from Sunday to Monday and thus compelled its passengers to travel on the Sunday. Mr. Rowland Hill says the author of the reply is an officer of that department of government, which is notorious above all others 
for its desecration of the Sabbath, a department of the government we may add, so beyond all others unfortunate, that to it alone is denied the possibility of self-reformation, and every effort after amendment is branded by anticipation as hypocrisy and imposture. My antagonist is fond of recurring to first principles. When he was engaged some years ago in what he now denominates the easy and pleasant task of a somewhat similar controversy with a very different correspondent, he constructed for that gentleman in a catechetical form a sort of rudimenta minora of theology, adapted to what he conceived to be the extent of his religious attainments, starting from the immortality of the soul. He descended by stages, judiciously graduated to a humbler and more practical question, the Sunday labours of the Bath Post Office. For me, a somewhat more advanced pupil, he has drawn up a series, indeed two series, of rather less elementary propositions, ending with this revolting, though certainly unquestionable, truism, that it is better for 60,000 letters to be burned, unopened, than for one post office clerk to perish in hell forever. Now, if I might be permitted to assume for a moment an office which my opponent appears to regard as peculiarly his own, that of a theological preceptor of adults, I would start, like him, from some elementary axiom, such as the authority of revelation, or the inspiration of the Bible, and leading him by an easy train of reasoning, through a few brief truisms of the properties of Christian charity, I should not despair of gaining his acquiescence at last, Tried by this test, the personalities of this question would be scattered to the winds. It might remain to be considered whether in the measure of the government there had been anything of mistake or miscalculation, whether their hopes had been too sanguine or their assertions too positive but for imputations of malignant design, of intentional deception, no place whatever could have been found. When the opponents of a measure turn aside the consideration of its inherent merits to that of the secret motives and intentions of its author, the attempt injures their cause far more than the success of the attempt could aid it. No man would resort to such an argument 
till all else had been exhausted. And if, unhappily, such outrages upon common honour and morality be excused, as here, by the plea of zeal for religion, it is well if the cause of religion itself do not suffer, by its association with practices so unworthy. But even upon the merits of the case, my reviewers are ready to join the issue. I am accused of the grossest ignorance of the facts involved in the discussion, the record refraining with an unwanted tenderness from the imputation of a more corrupt motive, or unwilling to expend upon a less formidable enemy any portion of that artillery which must be reserved entire for the devoted head of Mr. Rowland Hill, is contented to represent me as a respectable man, occupied for the last three months in reading nothing but the Times, and an instructive example of the pernicious influence of its suppressions. Now, if the burden of this change is a preference of the Times to the record, as a channel of political information, I must plead guilty. But if it be intended, as the context implies, that I borrowed from that or any other newspaper, the statements of facts contained in my letter, I can only reply that the charge is false. Not one assertion is there made, which was not obtained by explicit information from what every candid inquirer would regard as the most authentic source. I do not for one moment hesitate to confess that I regard an official government return as better evidence on a question of fact than the irresponsible publications of a Lord's Day Society. If the latter informs me that the new Sabbath labour already employs a considerably larger number of men on the Sabbath than was professed by Mr. Hill's minute, and if I learn from what I must regard as higher authority that the amount of extra work to be done on Sundays in the London office will, in all probability, be very shortly reduced to the employment of six persons and may ultimately be accomplished even without any such addition. Nay, with an actual diminution of the original number, while at the same time more than 190 persons who have hitherto performed regular work on Sundays are set entirely free. Within the London district itself, can I hesitate which to follow? But on other points, the conflicts of evidence is less real than nominal. 
the Society for Promoting the Observance of the Lord's Day, has forwarded to me a table of returns from its secretaries and correspondents, showing the hours of labour in 73 country post offices, both before and since the recent order. It is there stated that, putting together all these 73 post towns, the aggregate number of additional hours for which the post offices are now closed does not exceed 110 hours, being on an average one hour and a half for each place. Even in that document are contained the names of several towns in which the relief thus afforded has amounted to four hours of additional rest on the Sunday. But I will allow, for argument's sake, the entire correctness of their calculations. In 73 country post offices, the average of relief amounts but to one hour and a half. The government, in the meantime, has received returns not from 73, but from upwards of 480 towns, in which the amount of relief has varied from one half hour to seven hours on the Sunday, and the average has amounted to between three and four hours. Where is the real inconsistency of these statements? The Lord's Day Society on a much smaller induction, and with materials, it may be, carefully selected, arrives at one result. The government, on larger and less partial information, presents another. But in this case again, I ask, can I doubt for one moment which to follow? And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you're feeling drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'm working on bringing out a new episode for you very soon. Good night.